Hello, it's Bernard Nomberg. Thanks for stopping by the Nomberg Law Live podcast. Each week we have interesting conversations with people in their areas of expertise. My guest this week is John Solomon. John is part of the Aspen Institute, which is a think tank for many, many subjects, including sports and youth activities and the like. And John shares with us some interesting things that are going on with youth sports around the country. We also talk about the state of the NCAA and where it might be going into the future. Some interesting conversations, particularly for those folks who enjoy sports. Thank you for stopping by the Nomberg Law Live podcast. If you like this episode, please consider giving us a five-star rating and a review and subscribing will ensure that you get each podcast as they come out on a weekly basis. Thank you again. All right. Good morning, everybody. It's Bernard Nomberg with another weekly episode of Nomberg Law Live as we have the last few years, 10 o'clock on Tuesdays, 8 o'clock Pacific, 10 o'clock Central, interesting conversations with people in their areas of expertise. And I am so pleased to have John Solomon with us today. Good morning, John. Good to see you, bud. Morning. Thanks for having me, Bernard. Absolutely. And some of you guys may know John have having lived in Birmingham for a spell, but uh, he is uh, currently with the Aspen Institute. And John, I don't want to butcher this, but tell me where I'm wrong. Are you nope. currently the editorial director, sports and society program, uh, and you oversee, a part of that is you oversee communication platforms, content and manages uh, select programs within Project Play. You got it. All right, and I know that in your your past life, you've been a, well, well, probably your entire life, you've been an avid sports fan, but you've also gotten to write about it for a living uh, in Birmingham and in a few other places in the South. So we're glad that you're with us today. Absolutely, thanks for having me and enjoyed my time in Birmingham. So it's good to, good to be back there. I was there uh, for about 10 years, left in 2015. That's right, that's right. Well, it's so much has changed in the sports landscape and in the, well, the world as a whole but we're going to kind of narrow it down just a little bit. But I want to talk about, if you could, give us the 20-second the uh, overview, and this is not easy to do. What is the Aspen Institute? And then I want to kind of more focus on project play and some of the things that you're doing these days, John. Yeah, absolutely. So the Aspen Institute, we're a nonpartisan venue that um, really tries to think through uh, some of the biggest ideas out there in all our parts of society. Um, and to try to help the public good. And one of the particular programs at the Aspen Institute is called the Sports and Society Program, which I'm part of. And this um, initiative uh, develops, applies, and shares knowledge to really try to help build healthy communities through sports. Very good. And then let's talk about one of your projects that you're affiliated with, Project Play, which I know is, is so important. It's on a grassroots or tries to get to a grassroots level but I want to educate as many people as we can to maybe that it might impact their community or even their families and friends. Yeah, absolutely. So Project Play, this is an initiative that's part of the Sports and Society program. And Project Play was launched in 2013. And the whole idea is to try to increase youth sports participation and remove barriers so all children have the opportunity to play. 
regardless of you know gender, regardless of race, income, um, ability. There are so many barriers um, that are preventing kids from having quality access to sports. Um, like a lot of things in our society these days, it's sort of become the haves versus have nots, right? If you have a good amount of money, um, you're able to provide some really quality sports experiences, although those could lead to burnout or overuse injuries if you're playing way too much. And then on the other side, if you don't have much money, you're, you're, you don't have access to the same facilities, the same teams, the same ability to be um, develop the mentorships and friendships. Because um, we know that sports as a whole um, and physical activity specifically can provide so many long-term benefits whether it's related to academics or social and emotional development and mental health. And right now, of course, during the pandemic, we're seeing a lot of challenges with that. What, uh, John, if, if I live, if, if I have a child in a rural community or if I have a child who just doesn't have the financial resources to participate in local rec leagues, or there is no rec leagues in, in the community, how can Project Play or how can a family reach out to Project Play or how could they potentially benefit from what's being offered right now? Yeah, so we have a lot of resources at our website. Um, it's www.projectplay.us. Um, and we have resources about for coaches about how to be better trained and how to coach kids. Coaching, of course, related to skills. That's one thing, but we're very high on promoting um, social and emotional development and trying to make sure that coaches are helping young athletes grow personally, right? That it's not just about winning and, you know, being recruited and then, you know, the, all of that can sort of be a byproduct. And I wouldn't say not necessarily don't be competitive, but the real purpose of playing sports is all of those other benefits that are part of it. So our website has resources for coaches. We have um, resources for parents on there as well. For instance, we've done, um, uh, national surveys of youth sports parents um, about their attitudes, both before COVID-19 and then also what's happening right now during COVID-19. Um, we also have a periodical parent mailbag where people, parents can submit their own questions to us and we, you know, go through them and we answer them and, you know, a column that I write. Um, and, you know, we also just have information about coronavirus right now and, and, and resources and tools like return to play, you know, what does return to play? What should it look like? You know, how do you think through it? What are 10 questions families can ask themselves or their sports provider about COVID-19 safety? So a lot of different resources on there. Well, I, I put the link to that, to the website in our show notes, which I'm sure uh, many families would benefit just having that resource available to them. I know if I have a, a child or children who want to return back to rec leagues or whatever it is, but my local rec league uh, people who run it may not have all of the necessary um, answers that I'm, I'm looking for. So I'm sure that's a great uh, resource. So thank you uh, for that, John. What is, um, I guess, how do I put this? If, if let's say that I live in a community that has a regular, it's, it's a decently socioeconomic neighborhood and we just have pickup sports and we're going to get back to hopefully playing late in the summer or fall whenever it may be I'm not sure the timetable and we feel like we're, we're doing the right things but then you've got some families that just are still 
not very um, sure about their children being exposed back into public. Here, my question is, does Project Play have uh, speakers available? Do they have, um, other than uh, some resources, Q&A or so on the website, do they reach out into the communities if, if they're asked, I guess is what I'm trying to, to get. Yeah, to. I mean, we, we do, we do work in communities. Um, usually it's with like some specific partners, but we've worked in like 10 different communities across the country at different periods of time, often to create um, sort of a, a large big picture report of what the state of youth sports looks like in that community. So for instance, um, we, have, we did a report on Mobile County, Alabama, um, which I wrote a couple years ago and spent time there in Mobile and, and you talk to different people and collect a lot of data and research. And in each of these communities, we also survey the youth as well, which is a big part of what we believe at Project Play. One of our number one strategy actually is just is ask kids what they want. Um, and it sounds really simple, <clears throat> but unfortunately I think a lot of adults forget to do that, that ultimately this is the child's sports experience, not the adult's. Wait, are you sure? Yeah, yeah right, I know. Right? <laughs> it's not the adult sports experience. We had our experience already. So let's have the child's voice be part of this. What is it that they would like to do at practice, right? Or making sure that they are getting playing time or making it fun and enjoyable because we know we have research that the average child quits sports by around age 11 and it's because it stops being fun. Um, it stops being interesting to them and compelling. And the number one reason that kids always say in, in research about why they play sports is they want to be with friends and their teammates. Mm -hmm. And uh, winning, while I know that's very important for a lot of adults and some kids as well, and we all want to compete, but it, trust me, it ranks a lot lower for kids. It's usually like eighth or ninth like reason about why they wow. want to play sports. You know, it, it then gets into the, the longstanding debate where people criticize well, just because you participate doesn't mean you get a trophy. And I know that there are leagues that support that theory, that if you're going to go out and play, no matter what the score or the results, you're going to get some recognition some way. And then you have the, I call them the old school uh, mentality that it doesn't know. That's not how sports are meant to treat, uh, treat kids and to teach them lessons. You have to win, you know, in order to get the medal. And I didn't know if Project Play or any of your endeavors, if you have looked into this or researched it or, or done further studies to figure out where's the balance in that, because it really has been a very heated debate for, for a couple of decades now. Yeah, no, it's an interesting question. Um, I've always personally kind of thought it's, it, you're, you're totally right, it's a heated debate. I think it's also sort of been false debate and kind of misses the the bigger picture and that is that we just want kids playing sports like no matter what right so like look if, if when, when you get older i totally understand not having participation trophies and that's that, that that makes sense you're starting to pull it and it becomes competitive but when you're younger if you're like five or six or seven and i don't even know what the right age is to stop but like i don't necessarily see the harm of it if that somehow is motivating young kids to play sports or to continue to play sports and want to come back because uh, trust me, I've seen it. I've seen it living in Alabama. I mean, candidly, where um, when I lived in Hoover that uh, it was just a, a way too competitive T-ball league uh, for my five-year-old son. And by the end of the year, um, he said, I, I quit. I want to retire from baseball. And he was five years old. 
and he was he was done. This was a league where um, you had umpires uh, getting shouted at, you know, by parents. You had delays in the game, you know, waiting for a commissioner to come and settle disputes. Uh, you had coaches creating tactics that weren't the right way to teach the kids the skills. They were just trying to succeed to win the game. Um, double elimination, end of the year tournaments. You know, it was like, it was, it was crazy, you know? Yeah. And um, that drove a lot of my perceptions. Then afterwards, I was a new dad at that point. It's my first son. And I didn't want him to experience that anymore, but I kind of lost him a little bit through sports. He doesn't really do sports much anymore. My youngest son does. And I've become, I've tried to be a coach um, on most of his teams, you know, since then. So I have more of a voice and a say in it. John, I can recall, I was in college. My youngest brother was still in, in high school and he was umpiring in our hometown in Dothan where we grew up, the Southeast part of the state. And he was an umpire for T-ball and coach pitch, et cetera. He witnessed an opposing coach videotaping an opponent in an upcoming T-ball game. <laughs> I mean, unbelievable. Yeah, Sadly, I mean, I'm, I'm not it surprised. is believable, it but is. It, you're right. It's it's what goes on, and it's it takes the joy away from the experience for everyone involved. Yeah, uh, and, you and, may have leagues where there's no runs counted, but you have parents in the stands. You may even have kids in the dugouts keeping up with the score, because it's just maybe built into their DNA. Somebody has to win, and somebody's going to to lose. Yeah. But I'd be interested to see along these lines. Has, have your studies or your research shown are the numbers of kids going out for the various traditional sports, are they holding steady? Are they on the decline in the last couple of decades? Where, where do you see the health of rec league sports? Yeah, so rec league sports are hurting, there's no doubt. Um, what happened is, this has been going on for a couple of decades, youth sports have become a lot more privatized, um, meaning it's, it's become more commercialized, more of a pay to play industry. And so, so I'm 44 years old. When I was growing up, I played in the recreational leagues, played on a travel soccer team, but it was just a travel soccer team within the, the, the metropolitan area where I lived really. It wasn't, wasn't what it is today. And that's who you played with. You played with all the people in your community, you know, the local, you didn't travel much. It didn't cost as much. Um, the chase for the college scholarship really, you know, increased uh, the, the drive of these commercialized industries. And it's a major um, commercialized industry now. Youth sports. Oh, it's huge. It's huge. Yeah. We were, John, we were, my younger daughter ended up playing college lacrosse. And Alabama is not as advanced as the Eastern Seaboard, of course, with women's or boys or girls lacrosse. So if you wanted to be recognized or seen and scouted, you had to play in tournaments where they were going to be. So she ended up playing for teams out of state three straight years. Mm -hmm. And that was a tremendous amount of time and travel and money, but it was what she wanted. So we made that, that was part of our lifestyle, but yeah. you're right. You can be on a travel, a travel team as young as probably six or seven now with baseball, t-ball, softball. It's crazy. Uh, how competitive all that gets at such a young age. Yeah, and, and it's it's also how much money and time then families have to put into it. And I mean, candidly, I talk to a lot of parents who are travel sports parents, and I have never been a travel sports parent just for various reasons, but um, I, I talk to a lot of parents and actually they say sort of what you say, and that is 
I don't think they necessarily want the environment that they're in, but they feel like it's their only option, right? And sort of this, it's this arms race and they feel like it's keeping up with the Joneses. And if I don't put my child in there, how in the world is he or she gonna make their high school team, much less have any hope of a college team? So what we really, what we try to do a project play, what we think that our hope is, particularly coming out of the pandemic, is more investment in affordable, quality, local community-based leagues. Um, it's gonna be challenging, but I think there is a need for it. There's almost this need for this middle tier in youth sports. There's like the parks and rec leagues that um, serve their purpose, have a very good purpose because it's gonna get all the, the kids who are eligible to play and it's cheaper and it's local. <clears throat> then there's the travel sports teams where you probably have not probably, you do have, I think, and they're, they're considered more elite, not necessarily our, our, our elite coach, but they are considered yeah. and described elite. Yeah. Um, but I think there probably are a lot more kids in there who sh than who should be in there based on their talents or, or what their finances maybe could afford. Um, and then what we need is sort of this, this middle class where you could still offer quality coaching, you know, and, but it's local and it's affordable and it's not parents running around like crazy four or five times a week with, you know, practices and games and then traveling out of state to state a lot on weekends. It's, it's just a grind for a lot of people. It, it certainly can be a, a tremendous grind. Um, but anyway, let's, I, I, guys, I'm, I'm talking with John Solomon with the Aspen Inst Institute. We've been talking about Project Play and how they are trying to help, help with youth sports in the United States. And we're gonna shift gears for a few minutes. And, and John, I wanna, I wanna move into the NCAA and collegiate sports. In the news this past week, well, let me back up. In the news about three, uh, not quite three years, maybe two years ago, state of California passed some laws, kind of gave the NCAA a, a, hey, here's what we're doing, you need to get on board. Uh, but ultimately, what we're talking about is a, as an umbrella is the NIL. It's the name, image, and likeness issue that's going on that hopefully that they find a, um, a happy medium, if, if they can, to be able to compensate collegiate athletes in some way. Now, does that mean that the quarterback at Alabama is going to end up with a car dealership uh, <laughs> endorsement? I, I wouldn't think so. But at the same time, the backup field goal kicker is, is you know, what is that person uh, going to eventually be able to, to do with anything? So it's all over the board. But what I saw last week is that the NCAA has decided to delay uh, its vote on this issue. And that's where I want to lead to you is kind of from a, from a, let's look at this from a bird's eye view overview. Where do you see this going if you have your crystal ball um, that can look into the next three years? Yeah, so it's a good question. Um, so the, the definitive answer is to say, I think there's no doubt that extra compensation is coming to college athletes and it's, it's most likely gonna come this year, here in 2021, that I think we will start seeing athletes, um, I think in the 2021 calendar, you know, then um, uh, being allowed to make, be, in, unless there are legal uh, lawsuits that, that shut things down in some of these states, there will be, allowances of college athletes to make money off their name, image, and likeness. Basically, it's a right that all of us have. Um, typically, you're allowed to like, make money off your name, image, and likeness, commonly called NIL. Um, but college athletes are a rare 
subgroup that are not allowed to make it. Even though the general student body could, you could go, you know, uh, be if you're a non-athlete in college, you could make an endorsement um, if someone wants to pay you for something. If you're a college athlete right now, you can't. Um, the Florida law goes into effect July 1st of this year. That would allow NIL. It is um, less restrictive than what the NCAA and a lot of its members would like, but it's going to be a state law, and I think they're they're going to move forward unless they're stopped, you know, legally or there's a federal law that's created before then. So then there are all these uh, multiple efforts within Congress. The NCAA went to Congress seeking help because they want a uniform policy across the board. They don't want this going state by state, which it has the potential to occur because there are other states all lined up and, and, and ready to, to um, have some of their laws go into effect too. There's about four or five or six or yeah. seven other states and maybe this year. You know, John, the impact yeah. of that, if, if, if states are able to create their own uh, laws, which are not uniform across the United States, what a potential impact on recruiting that could be. So, yeah, so if you're Florida, it's a good year to be a Florida school in recruiting, <laughs> let's be honest. I mean, look, there's no doubt uh, you could recruit off that. It could, it could benefit. Um, I, I'm not necessarily of the opinion that the state-by-state -state approach couldn't necessar necessarily, could, could necessarily work. Um, uh, it would create chaos. It would be easier to have a uniform policy. Yeah. But the, the NCA wants a uniform policy that is can also be pretty restrictive and they're getting pushback from some members of Congress and people of, you know, athletes rights um, and then some of the states as well. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. There's basically three different ideas of federal bills that are out there right now. One is from um, uh, Senator Wicker from Mississippi is a Republican. That is the, the very, very friendly NCAA bill that's um, pretty restrictive. Um, and it comes also kind of close, doesn't specifically say it, but comes close to sort of giving the NCAA an antitrust exemption to try to protect them from future lawsuits. That's a, been a big concern of the NCAA because they've just been sued like crazy over the years um, well, for a number of issues. 2000, what was it, 14, the Northwestern football players tried to essentially unionize. Um, but, and I don't know if there's been other efforts since then from a litigation standpoint. You may be much more aware of that than I. But do you think that collegiate athletes eventually will unionize? Or do you think they'll, they, they won't be able to to keep their amateur status? Yeah, well, I mean, so right now they can't. Um, so you're right, the Northwestern tried it. And the NLRB, initially the, the regional board in Chicago of the NLRB ruled that for these private school football players in Northwestern, granted, remember it's not public school because it doesn't, right. NLRB doesn't cover public. But these private school, yeah, we believe they're employees. The regional board said that. Then it went to the national board and they pulled it back and basically said, this is gonna to be too difficult between public and private, but they never answered the, the, the question they right. on whether they're employees or not. They, they yeah. didn't want anything to do with it. They just, so, we'll push that on to the next decision. Right. right, so it's never been answered legally by the yeah. NLRB, yeah. Um, but it, employees would be difficult because state laws have their own yeah. restrictions and laws and it's very state by state and private schools are different than public. So I, I think that could be difficult for athletes to ever unionize. Yeah, I want to say, wasn't it maybe about a year or so ago, didn't some of the Stanford football players act like they wanted to, I can't remember. I know I know there was some rumblings out of Stanford from some of their football players about getting together, either with the NIL issue, or maybe it was the pre-pandemic or leading into the pandemic 
uh, and their safety and health concerns. I'm, maybe I'm getting that a little mixed no, they, up. They may have. I can't, I can't remember, recall exactly. Oh, we, John, we got a question for you, a little off topic, and you may recognize this fellow, Barry Dreyer, has <laughs> some questions for you. He says, do you miss him? Well, this is, we're going to change the subject for a minute because we could be talking about NIL for the next two hours and still not have any answers. But, but he says, do you miss covering sports as a columnist and a reporter? You certainly left a void when you left Birmingham. Uh, well, thanks for the comment, Barry. Good seeing, good not seeing you, but hearing from you. I miss our softball games. I used to play softball with Barry. Yeah, and he did morning. comment that you had deceptive speed <laughs> on the base bats. <laughs> I don't know about that. I was the opposite field hitter. Just tried to slap it to the third base side and maybe beat it out for a single. Um, do I miss it uh, a little bit? Just you know, having the, having a voice a little bit and be able to um, uh, uh, have opinions about um, the hypocrisy of college sports, but. Um, Journalism is just such a, unfortunately, a rough industry these days with so many cutbacks and it's just been a tough model for them to make money off of. So I don't miss the uncertainty of being a journalist. Um, what I also like at the Aspen Institute is that we're trying to always search for solutions um, to big problems and that are complex. And you know, one thing that journalism does a really good job of is typically, hopefully, is what they should do, is identifying problems right in different areas, and but they they uncover it as journalists, but you don't always test the solutions and come back to it later, you know, to see if these solutions are actually working or what's what came out of the attempted solution. So there's another story. <laughs> there's another story the next day. Yeah, exactly. You just move on. You move yeah. on. To the next thing. Yeah. yeah. But no, that's what it sounds like. The Aspen Institute. It, it's. I hate to use this term if I'm not properly uh, describing it as a, a think tank. I know some people don't like that term, yeah. but it really is a bunch of like-minded people trying to figure out solutions to problems that are big overall society uh, issues, whether it's sports or education or other parts of society. So it really is a very interesting uh, place where you, where you work. I, I know that that you're proud of where you work and the work that you guys are, are being able to accomplish. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and it's, and it's also, um, you know, nonpartisan, right? Um, it's, you know, it's, it's really important that we bring Democrats and Republicans to the table, people from all parts of the country, people from all different walks of life. Um, Cause unfortunately in our polarized society these days, we don't have a lot of venues and spaces where people can come together and just have real dialogue and in safe places. And it's not going to be, you know, accusations and, you know, and, and a lot of tension. So that's a, that's a big part of what we do as well is we do search for solutions and, um, but we also facilitate dialogue and we convene a lot of leaders. Well, the, the optimist in me says that that starts tomorrow, the healing, hopefully on some so. level, on, on many levels. But John, before I let you get out of here, uh, with you being a long time sports enthusiasts like myself and like BD, who had a great comment and question a minute ago. I want you to share with us maybe one or two of your most fond memories as a, a sports fan, whether as a kid or as an adult or whether you're covering the event or you're there just as a fan. Share with us one or two of your, your most favorite events. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I, I do miss some of the big events sometimes, right? And that's that's one of the, when you asked when Barry asked if I miss sports journalism, you miss the big events, being there in person, and the unpredictability of sports, right? And the, and the drama that anything can happen. So one that immediately comes to mind is the Kick Six, you know, in 2013 Iron Bowl, 
Yeah. Well, John, it was good to talk to you, but if you'll see, you're so right that sports to me is the last of the true reality te television. Yeah, it's not scripted, and the craziest things can and will happen, particularly at Jordan Hare Stadium in the fall on any given Sunday, a uh, Saturday. Correct. So I remember. So I remember at that game, you know, I'm up in the press box and writing. I, I seem to remember A.J. McCarron hit some deep touchdown pass in the fourth quarter, put Alabama ahead like a, I know, 80 or 90-yard pass. Yeah. Or whatever. And I'm writing my column, my piece already at that point, like, okay, that's it. That's the play, right? Like A.J.'s mm -hmm. big touchdown pass. And then, you know, you go for that field goal attempt. And I'm staying up in the press box because I'm on deadline. And a lot of other reporters often you go down onto the field mm -hmm. and you're there on the field at the very end mm -hmm. so you can get to the – you know, the interviews and all that, and you're loud on the field, but I just had a file right at the end. And then the kick six happens and you're like, what is going on <laughs> before your eyes seeing this? And you have to do a total rewrite. And I was able to, you know, convince my office, like, look, I'm not going to send this now. Let me just write something different. And I ended up just end up writing about the scene, the post-game scene. Oh my gosh. Fans all coming on the field and they all were reliving Chris, not all, but many yeah. were reliving Chris Davis's run. They started in the end zone. They're they're filming themselves and they're doing the moves. And and I just ended up writing a whole piece describing what I saw of the Auburn fans celebrating and what that celebration looked like, as opposed to, I didn't, I, I always kind of, as a reporter, like to zig instead of zag. I wanted to go different than some other reporters and just try to try to find a different story than just the same old Gus Malzahn quote and Chris Davis quote. It's it's usually, if not always to me, what happens outside the playing field, away from the game itself is so much more interesting uh, than the, the event. But if you remember just the week or two weeks before that game, injured in hair against Georgia, another miraculous play with the tip to the uh, number five, I can't think of his last name, the wide receiver who took the miraculous touchdown for Auburn to win another game. Yeah. Was it, is it still called is it the prayer of Jordan Hare? Is that there you go. There you go. That? Yeah. There you go. Well, John, thank you for, for spending some time talking about Project Play, a little bit about the name, image, and likeness, and, and some of your, your reporting. So I appreciate your time and sharing that with us today. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. Good luck. Oh, my, my pleasure. Guys, I, I wish each of these shows were longer than maybe closer to an hour, but then I'd not get my work done and my guests would never get their work done. But thank you, as always, for spending some time with us each Tuesday at 10 o'clock Central, 8 a.m. Pacific. Interesting conversations with people in their areas of expertise. And John certainly fits that today. So you guys have a great rest of your week and we will talk to you another time.